0: come in all shapes and sizes. There are young fools and there are old fools. There are uneducated fools and there are extremely educated fools. There are atheist fools and there are Christian fools. There are poor fools and there are wealthy fools. Today's parable from Jesus Christ centers on The person of a rich fool. Before we get to the parable, I want to review with you what we've been saying all along about parables in general. Five things we know to be true of parables in general. Number one, parables always teach us from the known to the unknown. Number two, about one-third of all of the Lord Jesus Christ's teachings while on earth were in the form of a parable. Jesus loved parables. He taught with them many times. Number three, each of Jesus Christ's parables were given either to solve a problem or to answer a question. That's why he gave parables, for one of those two reasons. And so it's always wise for us to look at the preceding context to any parable to see what was the question that he answered or what was the problem that he solved. And last, we cannot have an accurate interpretation of any parable if we take our setting, our culture, our customs, and superimpose them onto the customs, culture, and situation of Jesus' historic day when he gave the parable. No, we get the parables meaning birthed out of the context and culture and time of when Jesus gave the parable, and then we get that truth accurately, and then we apply that truth to today. And so, as I said, fools come in all different shapes and sizes. And the fool that Jesus will introduce us to in this particular parable was a rich fool. And the question which gave rise to the parable of the rich fool was very clearly stated for us in Luke 12 and verse 13. And someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. The fool that came to Jesus wanted Jesus to be a circuit court judge, wanted him to arbitrate between he and another family member over an estate, over a last will and testament, over money. And when this rich fool came to Jesus looking for judgment, legal judgment on an inheritance, Jesus instead gave him and us the parable of the rich fool. The man who came to Jesus wanted Jesus' help to be rich toward gold, but Jesus gives this parable for all of us to know how to be rich toward God instead. This whole question coming to Jesus from this rich fool about money and inheritances and so forth reminds me of at least two things. (laughs) The quip that where there's a will, there's a way for a family to fight over it. And a graveside service I wasn't physically present for, but my father-in-law, Best Daddy, was pastoring and had a graveside service. And right in the middle of the graveside committal, two brothers broke out into a fist fight over money over inheritance. And Best Daddy had to set his things down and break up a fight between two brothers right at the grave. Of their parent. Where there's a will, often there's a way for family to fight over what's in it. Well, anyway, Jesus was asked to arbitrate a family squabble over money left in a will. And as I've said to you, his response was this parable of the rich fool. I want to read the parable with you in its entirety, and then we'll look at more of the details of it. Luke 12, beginning at verse 13 through verse 21. Hear the word of God. And someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter over you? And he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul? You have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. One of the common denominators for all fools is that they mistake things. Fools mistake certain things. And the rich fool in this parable was no different. The rich fool in Jesus' parable mistook three things. Now let me say at the outset that This man in Jesus' parable was very, very successful. Verse 16, in fact, calls him rich. This man apparently worked hard, and he was good at that which he worked at. He had a very productive and very profitable farming business. He was wealthy. However, as successful as he was in the matters that are linked to this earth, He was a foolish failure when it came to the matters which were linked to heaven. And the Lord Jesus, in his own characteristic way, was blunt. And in the first part of verse 20, Jesus reports, But God said to him, You fool. Ouch. When God calls you a fool, Seek no other opinion. When God calls you a fool, there's no higher court of appeal. And so this rich on the outside, fool on the inside, farmer, fell into a trap. And it's a trap that we all easily can fall into in a heartbeat It's the trap of being materially rich, but spiritually misguided. And this trap is the basis of many of the things that we satisfy ourselves with in entertainment. Movies and video games and television programs that that posit to us, rich on the outside individuals, who are paupers of poverty and misguided in their spiritual innards. Now, please notice with me just how this man was spiritually misguided. Number one, he mistook himself for God. He mistook himself for God. I see that in verses 17 and 18. See it with me. And he began reasoning to himself saying, "What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops?" And he said, "This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods." He mistook himself for God. In this way he had an eye problem. Not an E Y E eye problem, he had a capital I problem. A me, myself, and I problem. He thought that he didn't need God for anything. He had an I problem. He mistook himself for God. But do you know what? It's so easy for me and all of you to have the very same kind of an I problem. Not an E-Y-E-I problem, but a capital I problem. And do you know how it shows up for us when we have an I problem? It shows up for us in pride. P-R, capital I, the I problem, D-E. I is in the middle of pride. But you know what else? I is in the middle of sin. S, capital I, there's the problem, N, sin. Oh, from time to time... God is judge. All of us from time to time have an I problem, a capital I problem. Look at all the first person pronouns in verses 17 and 18, please. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. He mistook himself for God. He didn't think that God had anything to do with his business acumen or his balance sheet. He had an eye problem. The foolish farmer, in Jesus' parable, recognized God in none of his circumstances. He didn't see God's glory. He only saw his own goods. And mistakenly, the rich fool saw himself as being the sole owner of his wealth. He saw himself as being the sole owner of his crops and fields. He saw himself as being the sole owner of his barns. He saw himself as being the sole owner of his happy times and circumstances in life. He mistook himself for God because God was the one who gave him the lands and God was the one who gave the sun and the rain and the crops that grew. And it was God who let him have barns. And it was God who gave him breath on loan from heaven to have happy times of circumstance that he enjoyed in life. You know, there are more fools around today than you might think. And embarrassingly, it's easy for all of us to mistake ourselves for God. It is. The fact is... That material things either are a window or a mirror. What you own, that you enjoy, that gives you material wealth is either a window to see God through or a mirror reflecting and letting you only see yourself. Whether it's your car or your apartment or your clothing or your food, it's either a window through which you will see God or it's a mirror in which you will only see yourself. Please don't mistake yourself for God. You are not at all qualified for that position. Well, the rich farm-owning fool not only mistook himself for God, he made another mistake. He mistook his body for his soul. He mistook his body for his soul. I see that in verse 19. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. He mistook his body. For his souls. You know, our bodies, from the crowns of our head to the soles of our feet, are magnificent, beautiful creation of God. Part of what it means to be made in God's image. Our bodies are a wonder to behold and to live in. But do you know really what a body is? A body is an earth suit. You know, astronauts, spacemen and women, they have to have a space suit to walk in space. A body is an earth suit that allows us to walk on earth with our senses. That's what your body is, and mine is an earth suit. Magnificent, fearfully and wonderfully crafted, but it's an earth suit. It doesn't last forever. It will die one day. It will be resurrected after death, but it will die one day. But you know what? When our bodies physically die, what's inside of them, what's encased inside our bodies, never dies. Our soul, spirit, these never die. And so when a person physically dies and their body stops having a pulse or respiration, for the believer in Jesus, at that moment of death, to be absent from the body is to be immediately present with the Lord in the soul-spirit state. Awaiting bodily resurrection. This man mistook his body for his soul. It was his body that could eat. It was his body that could drink. It was his body that could party. But he addressed it as though it was his soul. 19. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods, laid up for many years to come, take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And so he mistook his body for his soul. Our soul, I've taught you before, our soul is our personality. Uh, It's our intellect, our emotion, and our will. If our body allows us to interact and relate to our environments, and it does, then our soul allows us to interact with other persons. Our soul is our thinker, our feeler, and our chooser, our intellect, our emotions, and our will. And so, as I've said, our soul and spirit will live on forever after our body dies. When our souls live on forever after our body dies, they do not go on to live forever nowhere. They do not go on to live forever in multiple addresses. They do not go on to live forever in other persons that are still living. When we die, our soul and spirit become absent from our body to go to one of two distinct different zip codes, heaven or hell. There is no third zip code of purgatory. When a person's soul and spirit are dismissed from the body that has died There is no annihilation of them. There is no obliteration of them. There is no recycling of them. Souls dismissed from bodies that have physically died either go to heaven or to hell, and what determines which is exclusively, essentially, only what the person did or didn't do with Jesus Christ while they were alive. You can't pay a priest to pray your loved one's soul out of purgatory. There are no indulgences. There are no second chances after a person physically dies. No second chances to see the light on Jesus Christ that was rejected while alive. And may I just say, we can say rest in peace over a deceased person, until we're blue in the face. But if they died without Christ as Savior, there is no rest and there is no peace. There are very few words that we utter that have the same weight, the same importance, the same gravity as the words that we choose to speak after someone has died. And so if you are going to say she's in a better place, you better be sure she is. You better be sure that because of Christ he or she is resting in peace. I'll never forget when I was a young seminary student aspiring to be a pastor learning Bible and theology that the seminary required that we as Students would have a summer field, a field ministry or a, an internship. And I was very privileged to go to Michigan, where my father in law, best daddy, pastored, and I spent a whole long summer with him doing everything he did writing sermons, visiting the sick, um, being a part of board meetings of the leaders of the church. It was very, very uh, helpful. And I remember the phone rang in my father-in-law's study at church, and word came from the community, not from anyone in the particular church he pastored, that a young boy had been killed. The young boy had been killed by a U.S. mail truck had hit him and killed him. And so my father-in-law started to tenderly but relentlessly try to ask as many persons as possible who knew this family, because my father-in-law did not know this family, and as many persons even better that knew the boy, and he would ask them things like, did he go to Sunday school ever? No. Did he go to vacation Bible school ever? No. Did, was he, was he a dedicated to the Lord by his parents as a baby? No. There was no reason to feel that this young boy knew Christ as his Savior. That's tough. So we went to the funeral home ahead of the public coming to pay their respects, and we met the mom and dad, the distraught mom and dad, and aunts and uncles and others. And we shared scripture with them, and, and we prayed. And in my father-in-law's prayer, he said that he thanked God that he would have the privilege of bringing the greatest news that Kevin ever possibly could have heard. By that he meant the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for sins and arose from the dead, And he said in that prayer that he knew that Kevin, the deceased, was in the hands of God Almighty. That's what he prayed. He finished praying. We said goodbye to the family, and we're walking out to our car, and this this particular aunt was irate. She ran after us and caught up to us in the funeral home parking lot, and he says, How could you not say he's in heaven? How could, you, how could you just not pray to him that he's in heaven? Well, part of being a pastor is being biblical, and part of being a pastor is truth and love. Truth without love is a hammer, and love without truth is mush. And so I was listening. This is it's a teachable moment for a young seminary student. He said, I prayed that Kevin is in the hands of, of the living God, because that is where Kevin is. Period. The aunt wasn't entirely satisfied, but she turned on her heel and went back into the funeral home. And so I said, Dad, if she had pressed you, if she wasn't satisfied with what you said, that he's in the hands of the living God, what would you have said next? said, son, I would have told her that he's in the hands of the living God either for condemnation or for salvation, depending on what he did or didn't do with Jesus while alive. Our words are rarely more weighty and rarely have the need to be more accurate with precision accuracy than when someone dies. Friends, please don't mistake your body for your soul. Your soul is far more than your earth suit. The man made the first mistake that he mistook himself for God. And then he made a second mistake that he mistook his body for his soul. But he made a third mistake. He mistook something else, he mistook time. For eternity. He mistook time for eternity. Look at verses 19 to 21, please. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. He mistook time for eternity. Will you notice in verse 20 that the word required is there? But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. That is, that for this man in the story and for each of us, Life, the gift of life on earth has an expiry date. And we don't know what that date is. He told the man, the rich fool, that one day his soul was going to be required of him. Then still in verse 20, the question is asked, and now who will own what you have prepared? Not only does life on earth have an expiration date, but there is no bumper hitch on the back of funeral hearses. We can't take anything with us to the afterlife. It all stays here. No bumper hitch on funeral hearses, no FedEx routing to hell or to heaven. And time, one day time, will melt into eternity. And when that melting takes place for you maybe when you least expect it. He mistook time for eternity. And this wealthy businessman farmer assumed that he had many years to live before he would die. Maybe he got a good physical exam report from his physician. Maybe his blood work at the lab turned out really good. Maybe his side of the family lived into their 90s. Maybe he jogged. Maybe he ate well, healthy. He assumed that he had many years to live before he would die, but boy, was he wrong. For him time would melt into eternity that very night. Not many years down the road when he had enjoyed the things he stored up in his barns. You know, we all can make assumptions (laughs) that we're going to live a a good long time. I have a regular checkup with my doctor scheduled for January, but I may not live to see that appointment. I plan to pay my BPL bill sometime next week. But I may not live long enough to pay the bill. I'm planning to have lunch with someone tomorrow. But there may only be one seat at the table. Neither time nor eternity are impressed with our wealth. Neither time nor eternity are servants to our wealth. And neither time nor eternity are controlled in any way by me or you. (laughs) If you say that you can dictate to the length of your time on earth, and that you say that you can dictate to the details of your eternal life and eternity, that's like getting locked into a roller coaster car and saying, watch me drive this baby. The fact is that we are all along for the ride as our sovereign God drives us first through time on earth and second through eternity, either in heaven or in hell. We're along for the ride. We are not driving the car. You may have a long time to live here on earth or you may not have much time at all. Same for me. Neither of us knows when time will melt into eternity for our respective lives. Only God knows. And so that's why it's really quite wise and biblical to DV life. DV, Deo Volente. Deo God, Volente if he wills. Deo valente, abbreviated DV, means I will do this or that on such and such a day, DV, if God wills. I will be so and so with so and so somewhere on such and such a time, DV, if God wills it. Of course, this is scriptural. We know in James, the first readers of the book of James had a problem with assuming assuming that life would just carry on in a homogeneous, uniformed way. There wouldn't be any interruptions. They could plan and control their own daytimers and devices and calendars. But in James 4, 13 and 15, we get a, a warning, a corrective. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, Latin, Deo Volente, d.v. If the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. DV, that outlook, DV puts us in our proper place of inferiority to God, and DV outlook equally puts God in his superior place to us. If God wills it, I will do this or that. And so I tell you what you already know. Life is fragile. Handle it with prayer. Life is fleeting. Don't be assuming that it is not. The longer I live and the closer I get to my departure date, my expiration date at least on earth, I realize that myself and everybody I know were walking on the lips of our own open graves. Only our creator knows the exact number of each of our days. In fact, he knows this number before we were even conceived. According to Psalm 139, verse 16, Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written, the days which were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Every one of us has a certain number of days that God has ordained for us to live on earth before we were even conceived, and we will get every single one of those days that God has ordained, not one day longer, not one day shorter. And so it is not a morbid person who faces the inevitability of their own physical death. It is not a morbid person who faces that inevitability. It is a measured person who does. A measured person faces the inevitability of their own physical death. They are not death-denying. Canadian soldiers go through boot camp, training, And when they have successfully gone through Canadian military boot camp training, there's one extra step that they must go through before they are commissioned as members of the Canadian military. They must prepare and sign their own last will and testaments. You haven't graduated from boot camp if you haven't made your will and signed it. Why? Because Canadian soldiers could die on any battlefield, any peacekeeping mission, where they find themselves. Doesn't matter how young they are. Doesn't matter how strong they are. Doesn't matter how wise they are. Doesn't matter how trained they are. They could die. Every one of them. So to finish their training, they have to prepare a will. Sign it. Must be hard on the mothers and fathers who understand that when they go to the military. I don't know if you call it a commencement exercise or what you call it. There was a fine group of missionaries in a bygone century, that, the Moravians. Moravian missionaries also weren't morbid, but they were measured. They faced the brevity of their lives, and they looked down death without fear. The Moravian missionaries who would move from Europe to a various mission fields around the world, had interesting luggage. They packed all their necessary earthly belongings in their own coffins because they were prepared to die for Christ wherever they were going to serve him on a mission field. They weren't expecting anybody to go to the expense of bringing their bodies back to their home countries. And so they packed everything they needed for the mission field in their coffin. They didn't mistake time for eternity. Of course, the only way to be prepared for eternity is in the temporal. No one gets prepared for eternity after they pass away. All preparations for eternity are done now. First and foremost, responding to the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ, who died as our substitute in our places, shed his innocent blood for our vile guilt, didn't stay dead. God, the Father, raised him from the dead to show that his payment for our sins is fully satisfactory in heaven. But like any gift, that gift is not your gift until you receive it. Your mother can't receive it for you, nor your father, nor your brother, nor your sister. No, your wife, know your husband. That gift is only to be received personally by personal faith being placed on the finished work of Christ. Have you done that? If you've done that, you are prepared to die. And if you have not done that, you are not prepared to die no matter what your bank account reads. It's sad to me that many people I meet make more preparation to go to the food store Than they do to go to heaven. When people make more preparations to go to the food store than they do to go to heaven, they're mistaking their time for eternity. Let your eye go to verse 19, please. I see a two car head on collision in verse 19. A head-on two-car collision. Verse 19, the rich man, the fool, says, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, 20, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. That is the two-car collision of the rich fool's focus being on time and God's focus being on eternity. That's the two-car head-on collision of the thought of laid up for many years to come and this very night. Laid up for many years to come collides with this very night. In this verse, it's the collision of the assumption of perpetuity and the appointment of entering eternity. Two-car collision. 19. I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. 20. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? My brothers and sisters, this two-car head-on collision that I'm pointing out to you in verses 19 and 20, it's a jarring collision where the airbags go off in both vehicles, a collision that we'd be very, very good to try to avoid. And the way that the collision that's depicted in the the parable in verses 19 and 20, the way that that high-impact two-car head-on collision is avoided is to live rich toward God. Verse 21. So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. There'll be a two-car collision if you choose not to live rich toward God. But if you choose to live rich toward God, that two-car collision can be avoided. The fool... Doesn't live rich toward God, and so it has the collision. The Christian under the Lordship of Christ who lives rich toward God does not have to have the collision between a focus on time and God's focus on eternity, a, does not have to have the collision be laid up for myself many years to come, and God saying, This very night. How do you live rich toward God? With humility in prayer, with gratitude and worship? How do you live rich toward God with a holy life, keeping short accounts with God when it comes to personal sin and confessing it? Faith in Jesus. How do we live rich toward God? By obeying the the Bible. Uh, Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Living with eternal purposes that outlive us using our money, our time, our talent, our connections, our networks for things that will outlive us, things that are eternal. That's how we live rich toward God. We we live rich toward God when God's glory is the measurement of success. If we want to avoid this two-car collision, we have to live rich toward God. (laughs) This is a parable of the rich fool, and it's telling us, among other things, there's a big God, and there's a long eternity. And there are things in our everyday lives that are way, way, way more important than financial inheritances. It's interesting that the parable starts with someone wanting Jesus' help to be rich toward gold. But it ends, the parable ends with Jesus telling all of us to be rich toward God instead. And someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter over you? And he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even one who has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a certain rich man was very productive, and he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns, and I will build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul! You have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool! This very night your soul is required of you. And now, who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Oh, Heavenly Father, we would ask for the grace to live rich toward you. Not to mistake ourselves for you, Lord, and to see what you've loaned us by way of possession as being a window to see you and not a mirror to see ourselves. Oh, God, help us not to mistake our bodies for our souls. Help us to understand that when the body ceases to to live that the soul does not. And Lord, help us not to mistake time for eternity. Help us to understand that one date that we do not understand or know, our time will melt into our eternity. May we be ready. Lord, we don't want to come to you asking you to help us to be rich toward gold Instead, we want to come to you to ask you to help us to be rich toward you. And we pray these things because there's no need to bicker over inheritances or bank accounts or wills. And we pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.